is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. Ace is the only national retailer that carries Benjamin Moore paint, which means the paint you trust and a huge selection of colors are right in your neighborhood. And right now, when you buy a sample of Benjamin Moore paint, we'll give you $5 off your next paint purchase. So if you're looking for award-winning service and a new look for your home, look no further than Benjamin Moore paint at Ace. Offer valid on gallons of Benjamin Moore, Clark & Kensington, and Royal Paint. Limit one $5 coupon on one gallon purchase to participating Ace stores only. See store for additional details and exclusions. You are about to enter the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast on shockwaveskullsessions.com. And now your host, Bob Nalbandian. Shockwave Skull Session podcast. We got this is a docking episode. Uh, and you're not listening to the Classic Metal Show. This is the Shockwave Skull Session. We are doing an episode on Dawkins because our good friend, Mr. James Curl, just uh, released a brand new, uh, I guess we could call it brand new, just came out about a week or two ago, Dawkins Into the Fire and Other Embers of 80s Metal History. That's right. Yeah, it came out about three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, man. Brand new. Very, very cool. And... Uh, who else better to get on a Dawkins podcast than our one and only Wendell Neely from the Classic Metal Show? In fact, it, if we didn't have Wendell on the show, it would Wendell. Look at now. Now I'm calling you Wendell, like I'm Don Dawkins or, or or Ron Keel or one of your other good friends calling you Wendell, uh, <laughs> Mister Neely. It would be blasphemous not to have Neely on a podcast regarding Dawkins. Am I correct there, Mister Neely? You're right. You, you know, you know when people get to be familiar with you when they start calling you by your first name. That is correct, and, and I'm not to that status yet, so I do apologize. Wendell, I don't know, Bob. Calling. You and I have hung out on many occasions, <laughs> and uh, I've made the trip to L.A. and we've we've done several Nam shows together and some inside metal screenings and just uh, good good times had by all having dinners together and. Uh, late night breakfast with the swishy waiters and all kinds of stuff. So absolutely, I, I, I think you, I think you've earned the right to call me by my first name. Well, I am honored. Speaking of uh, a breakfast, we had a couple breakfasts, or at least uh, at least one with uh, with James Curl down at the Nam show as well. We did the Heavy Metal Hall of Fame. Remember that? That's right. That was awesome. So uh, that one as well. Absolutely. And our third guest, who I have yet to meet yet, but dying to meet, the one and only. Miss Kendall Peters. What is going on, Kendall? Uh, doing good. Still uh, unemployed in the quarantine, making the most of my time. It's a pleasure to be on Shockwave Skull Sessions. And yes, I have to make it to Los Angeles. My family gives me shit because I want to go there just simply to maybe go to the Rainbow Bar and Grill. But to me, that's where the scene I love is from. And uh, hope to get there uh, one day. Well, let's see if the Rainbow Bar and Grill uh, will last after this whole quarantine and all the bullshit going on. Hopefully uh, it won't affect uh, the Rainbow and various other rock clubs in LA, but you never know. Uh, and Kendall, you, you still uh, do, uh, you're, you are still doing the radio show, correct? Why don't you talk a little bit about the uh, show you got? Yeah, so I'm on uncontrolednoise.com with the great Shockwaves and Classic Metal Show. It's uh, Metal and Kendall. It airs Wednesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern, and it's just a solo show where I play music, talk, uh, whatever I'm feeling, and that's the Kendall part, and the metal part is uh, the classic metal bands I love, particularly Dawkins. 
All right. And I, I do love your show. I've, I've tuned in uh, several times. And it's great. Not only Dawkins, but you'll play a, a wide array from, you know, bands like Metal Church and Armored Saint to, a, you know, from the thrash to the glam to, uh, but, you know, a lot of 80s and some 90s metals. A great, great mix. Uh, and uh, being as young as you are, I think that's awesome, man, that you're really uh, promoting the uh, classic uh, 80s, 90s, and not just the popular songs. You'll, you'll play a lot of the underground songs, which is awesome. Yeah, I guess I mostly like the underground stuff uh, or the deep cuts, as some would call it. But right. uh, I just like, in general, good music, and that's why I gravitated toward all those bands. Yes, and being as young as you are, you're, you're, this is a college. Is this through college you're doing this as well? Because you had a college radio station too, yeah. correct? Yeah, I got my start through college radio. We had a Metal Mondays at Wilkes University where I went, uh, but I loved it so much that I was given the opportunity by Corey from Un Uncontrolled Noise to start a show. And originally it was a podcast, but now it's back to the live version where I get to talk to a lot of people uh, from like the classic metal show fans and friends. So I continue to do that. Mm. Just to give you a friendly warning, though, Kendall, once you do graduate from college, you might be ignored by Neely. Well, uh, actually, he, 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 I, likes, uh, he likes uh, young uh, school students. So, uh, you know, I, I just let you know, but, you know, I, I will never ignore you, Kendall. I, am I right in saying this, James? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I, <laughs> I've heard that Wendell liked the younger girls. Well, I graduated two years ago. Oh. We'll talking to Neely, but that's why I went next year. Sorry, Neely. Got to bust your balls somehow, right? That's all right, Bob. <laughs> I got broad shoulders. I can handle it. I just hope I didn't hurt your feelings there. <laughs> But anyway, let's let's get into this book, man. Uh, a lot of great, great stories. Uh, in fact, one story that you neglected to mention. Uh, in fact, I don't even know if you're familiar with this, James. Uh, it's actually regarding Neely. Are you familiar that Neely taught Don Dawkins how to bowl? <laughs> I, I, I was actually quite familiar with that, but... It was kind of embarrassing, so I didn't put it in the book. Well, it's it's an, it's an exclusive here on the Shockwave Skull Sessions. Neely teaches Don Dawkins how to bowl. Unbelievable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so if you guys don't get the inside joke, well, pity for you. Anyway, let's uh, really? let's talk let's talk about this Dawkins book. You know, the one thing I'm really impressed about, and I, to be honest, dude, I haven't had a chance to uh, read it. I've just uh, briefly gone through it. And uh, I like the fact, uh, I mean, anyone, you know, could have got the George Lynch's and, and the main guys, obviously, uh, in, in Dawkins. Uh, sure. But you really dug deep and you got a lot of, uh, you know, you got Greg Leon, who was involved in the uh, very early years uh, as a guitar player uh, with Don on, on, the, on the very first uh, recordings with Don, as well as Gary Holland, a fantastic drummer. Many of them remember him from Great White. And you really get into the early days, uh, which a lot of people don't uh, don't uh, discuss. Did you also talk to Michael White? I see he's in the acknowledgments. I did. I did talk to Michael White. He played the with White. George Lynch and uh, Mick Brown when they were in The Boys. That's correct. He was a singer for, uh, you know what? The White was the first, actually, uh, pardon me, the second live band, local band I saw when I was 16 years old. The first being a la carte at the Golden Bear. And then I saw Michael White. He was in the greatest Zeppelin tribute band. And this was back in 1981, probably. And he had a, a Zeppelin tribute band called The White. And they, they did a fantastic, and this was before the whole tribute band things. You had Randy Hansen doing the Hendrix and you had the White. And they would do a two-hour Zeppelin set, and they would do, like, Achilles' Last Stand and Cashmere and just all this cool shit. And, and they were awesome. They actually did a record on Atlantic, I believe. Uh, he did a solo record. 
and supposedly Zeppelin had it squashed. Did he get into that at all, by chance? He, he didn't mention anything about that, but he did mention that he met Robert Plant, and they more or less became friends, and, and Robert Plant didn't have a problem with, with what he was doing at all. Oh, okay, that's good. I heard, I mean, through rumors, because that album was not promoted at all, and I heard that uh, Zeppelin was still, you know, this was, I guess, shortly after Bonham had died. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, yeah, probably a couple years after, but of course he had this still the whole Zeppelin catalog going. And supposedly Zeppelin, I don't know if it was Jimmy Page or Plant or whatever, did not want Atlantic Records to promote the white and wow. supposedly had that record squashed. Now, that's the rumors I heard from, from many people, but who knows? Who knows the real? Yeah, he didn't mention anything about that. You know, one guy that I did get for the book that goes back really far was Stephen R. Barry. He was in the very first incarnation of Dawkin when it was just a three-piece band back in uh, 1976, right after Don quit or changed the name from Airborne to Dawkin. So I did get to talk to Stephen R. Barry, the bass player, and wow. Don played guitar and Greg Peckett played drums. And I, and I talked to him and he told me some great information too. Oh, wow. Great. And didn't uh, Juan Crucier's brother play with Dawkins too for a little while? Yeah, they both did. Juan Crucier and uh, Juan Crucier's brother did. Wow. Over, yeah. in, over in Germany. Yeah. Yes. Early, yeah. I do remember that. Ages. Well, you know, I'll tell you a little story before we get started. First time I saw Dawkins, I believe was at the country club and I was a, a, a huge uh, a fan of Malice. I think it was it was prior to them putting out their debut in the beginning, but they put, had a demo tape that Michael Wagner produced again a, a, a big connection there with the Doc and Cam. But uh, they did a show, I believe at the country club it was Lita Ford, Malice, and Dawkin opened, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember who was in Dawkin at the time, but I believe it was their first L.A. show. And and I just knew of Dawkin from Germany because I, I was a big fan of European, you know, the new wave of British heavy metal and European bands. And I remember seeing the Dawkin uh, as an import. So I always thought he was this German dude that came over. I wish I remember. I remember seeing the show, but I can't recall who was in that first touring band, if it was George... I, this would be prior to George Lynch, correct? That would be prior to George Lynch, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of people did think that Dawkins was a German band from the very beginning because Breaking the Chains had come out with uh, under a, a, a French label. Correct, Carrere, which uh, was Saxon's label, I remember. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Very cool. Uh, Kendall, why don't you talk about some, uh, your early Dawkins experience? I know, obviously, you're, you're a lot younger, but what uh, what got you into Dawkins and uh, becoming such a huge fan of that style of uh, L.A. metal, especially being from the Midwest? Well, it started with just the style of that um, heavy metal, hard rock, and because I liked that, I had watched the Hearing video, which was the first time that I saw Dawkin. Um, very, like, vaguely had I remembered hearing some of their songs in the past. Uh, but then when I saw uh, specifically Don the video singing his part, I just thought he was more unique than, than most singers, although everyone back then had their uniqueness. But he just had something special. So that caused me just to, to grab my attention on the band. Uh, but then I took it further to become the huge fan that I am uh, in terms of just watching their videos. I, I started with the early albums from the 80s, their first four classics, and then gradually became more leaning in my favorites to their uh, later albums, just because I relate more to the, to the lyrics. And as John Levin would say in the book, by the way, that uh, Doggins 
Dawkins' music later on was more like Cheerios with salsa, and I liked the salsa, so I became more of a hardcore fan in that sense of liking their entire discography. And also, I was picking up the guitar around the same time, and I, even though I'm in the Don camp, I feel that, well, I, I know George Lynch is my favorite player, so that grew my bond with Dawkins even more in terms of enjoying uh, his guitar playing and his special characteristics in the band overall just you know that's it just uh they've become just my favorite band through all that for 10 years now right on it's been been about 10 years sophomore year is when i really got into metal it was not just docking at that time it was all the other bands you had mentioned that i like in the past like uh more the b c level bands in in my ears not b and c level they're better than the a's but you know i just became a metalhead in that sense around that time all right just curious was your parents was your mom into metal or into a lot of these bands and Um, turned you on to it definitely not my mom uh she would cite her favorite band as smash mouth but not be able to name (laughs) even their hit song is your mom younger than you are (laughs) no but she's a bit ditzier just do us a favor don't take her to a docking concert or she's liable to get punched out by don well, she could have actually, because the first docking concert I went to was in 2015, and that's the only one my parents went with me. Uh, and I had drawn a picture of the band in their current lineup because I feel there wasn't really much of those. Like people don't appreciate the current lineups as much. So I drew them a picture, and she kept showing the picture to Don. And I could tell by the like fifth time she showed it to Don, he got annoyed. Like. Okay, we get it. There was a picture. Get the fuck out of here. So he could have, he could have, and she did rush the stage after the show to get him to sign it, which he did, which he's cool for that. But uh, she was safe from the fists. So where I, people that don't know, apparently Don has a pension for punching out mothers. Which is it? Is it that right, Neely? Well, as the story goes, about uh, four years ago, I was with uh, Doc in, in a uh, at a club or a venue in Dayton, Ohio. And uh, for some reason, which which I don't even understand to this day, Don swore on stage because the sound man was doing such a bad job and there was so much feedback. I mean, you, you could, the, the video is still out there on YouTube of the live performance uh, uh, in Dayton, Ohio. And uh, every time Don went to the mic to sing, the, the monitors would just feed back just horrifically. I was on stage, and believe me, it, it just would knock you back across the stage wall that the feedback was so bad. Mm. So Don just got so disgusted with it. When, when it fed back, he just went, fuck! And uh, for some reason, people found that offensive. I, I don't know. I don't get it. Uh, they, they thought it was horrific. I don't know if it was a Bible Belt town or something like that, but... People were all upset that Don swore on stage. And then after the show was over, not a whole lot happened. I mean, uh, I went to the uh, promoter or the state, the, the club owner. I collected Don's uh, settlement and Don signed some autographs and we got on the van and went back to the hotel. That was all there was to it. And before you knew it, online on these uh, bulletin boards and social media, people were claiming that. Dawkins was rude and 
Uh, Don punched some uh, kid's mother. <laughs> she just went up to get an autograph from him, and he slapped her. She she went up and had like uh, like back for the attack album in her hand, and he slapped it out of her hand and punched her. And all. it's like, when in the fuck did this happen? So that was always a big running joke here on the classic metal show. But to, to, for people to fabricate a story like that, it's like, yeah, Don punched my mother in the face and knocked her album out of her hand. Well, dude, that's classic. I think you should go for it. That's great publicity, dude. As a publicist, <laughs> think about it. That'll bring the rebellion back to metal. Of course. <laughs> Left hook from right field, right? As Armored Saint would say. Right. Nobody wants to hear about Don punching out their mother. <laughs> I don't know, man. You, you you remember the big controversy that uh, Axel Rose and uh, Vince Neil had when uh, Vince Neil said he wanted to punch out Axel and it got all over the music news? Maybe well, we could... Re- that's one thing, musician <laughs> on musician, that's one thing, a little rivalry there, but to punch out a kid's mother, I, I don't think that's going to fly too well with most people, especially in this ultra-sensitive age. Well, what if it's a mother trucker? What if it happens to be uh, Sebastian well, Bach? Uh, if Sebastian Bach was in the building, it might be fine. <laughs> well, well, let's let's get into this. Uh, to begin, James, uh, talk about how this whole thing started and the process. I know you did a fantastic book on Ronnie James Dio, we got to mention, uh, which came out. Of, what? That's about a little over a year ago now, right? Almost uh, two years ago. Right about two years ago. Yeah, yeah. I, I finished that book up, and I decided to do another book, and... I just started thinking about different bands to write about, and Dawkins popped into my mind because they've always been one of my favorite bands ever since I was 15 years old. And I had uh, befriended Neely, so I reached out to, to Neely and asked him if he could maybe hook me up with Don for some interviews. And I had already known Jeff because Jeff did the forward on my Dawkins book, and I mentioned it to Jeff. Even on the Dio book. The forward right. on, on the Dio book. Right. And I mentioned uh, a, a book about Dawkins to Jeff, and he thought that was a good idea. So Jeff and Don both agreed to do interviews, multiple interviews, and uh, I reached out to the other guys, and they wanted to write their they wanted to write their own books. Particularly Mick, he said, "Well, he wanted to write his own book, so he didn't want to tell me all of his secrets." So I just went ahead and moved forward with Don and Jeff, and anybody else I could get in touch with, and and wrote the book that way. And I asked Neely to write the book for it. I thought that that was appropriate since he was a good friend of Don and he had been a fan of Doc and for you know, 30 years. So it just, it turned, turned into a life of its own with people I got in touch with and with Wendell's help, which, uh, I owe, I owe a lot to him for helping me out with that. You know, it probably wouldn't have happened without his help. So thank you, Neely. Go ahead. Kiss his ass. (laughs) (laughs) I am. (laughs) Well, in one sentence, I'm Wendell, and the other sentence, I'm Neely. Yeah, Wendell and Neely. <laughs> Still, he's not quite at that level where he could call you uh, Wendell full-time. He's got to just right. kind of sneak it in there every once in a while. Sure. Cool, man. Uh, yeah, fantastic book. And, yeah, I mean, the Dio book was was a very awesome book, and you really touched on a lot of stuff that even, even I didn't know about Dio. And Dio was my my very first interview I did when I was uh, started the Headbanger, and when he just put out the 1983 inter- uh, debut album. Uh, he he invited me over to his house. I was sixteen. No, I, I was I, I was seventeen years old. I hung out at, ho- at his house, his old house in Tarzana on Donna Lane for like two hours, and I was just it was just one of the greatest experiences. And uh, you know, so great to see that you put a I you know, there's not really a, a lot uh, published about Ronnie James Dio really and his personal stuff. And and same mm-hmm. with Dawkins, Dawkins, and a lot of people don't realize the uh, history 
of Dokken. Uh So many people think, you know, it's just this eight, you know, the band that came out in the early to mid mid eighties, and they're just like the stock eighties hair metal band. But you really get into the history, which I appreciate. And 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 as you guys know, I did the Inside Metal uh, series, and and the first uh, title of that series, The Pioneers of L.A. Hard Rock and Metal. I get really deep into the beginnings of the L.A. scene from the late seventies, you know, the Van Halen era and the the Starwood to the beginning of you know Don's career with, as you mentioned, his band Airborne, and of course George Lynch had the Boys and Exciter before that, and uh, you know Autograph were called the uh, Wolfgang, and of course uh, Quiet Riot with Randy Rhodes. Yesterday and today we're playing you know the L.A. clubs as, as, as well as playing the Bay Area since you know the mid to late seventies, and a lot of people don't know that history. And and you really get into it, which which I appreciate in interviewing a lot of the uh, people from the early uh, docking days in this book. Um, talk a little bit about that, because obviously I was too young to hit the Starwood and all those clubs, and you know. But me growing up in LA, I remember that whole scene, and I really remember the whole the Hollywood scene, and there were mm-hmm. the bands that we called the Redondo Beach scene, which was pretty much docking. A great white who were Dante Fox at the time, who I used to see all the time at the Woodstock Club, and that was back even before Gary Holland when um, Tony Richards from Wasp was playing drums, and of course Don Costa on bass. But Dante Fox, Malice, Total Access Studio was kind of the hub, uh, Win Davis's place, and uh, Michael Wagner just came over, started working there, and that was kind of the Redondo Beach scene, and and and, and Motley Crue had a bit of a. Uh, you know, because I know uh, Mick Mars was from there, and it was uh, there was a scene there. You know, you had the the Strand and clubs before that. I can't remember the names, but uh, t- talk a little bit about that that uh, whole era. That was that was a fun era, and and I think it's important to to for people to realize that Dawkins is an important band because they go so far back in the era in that era, and they're they're a piece of that history that happened. You know, they're a piece of it. Dawn and all those guys, they are a piece of, of what developed. It's just amazing to, to listen to these guys talk when I do interviews with them and hear, hear them t- tell their stories about playing at all of these famous clubs, you know, the, the Whiskey A Go-Go and, and Gazaris and the Troubadour and opening up for, for bands like Van Halen before they were even famous and opening up for bands like Motley Crue. It's, it's, I think it is important for people to understand that these bands are important in the history of rock and roll. You know, a lot of them just get labeled as hair metal bands or glam bands, and they're just tossed into the whole mix like they're not important. But, you know, they really are in the whole scheme of things. You know, there were the latter bands, you know, the Poisons and the Warrants, and a lot of these guys that came over from out of state that came over and made themselves a name in LA in the in the mid eighties. And you know, they, they worked their ass off and start played the clubs a bit. But you know, that was already when MTV was in high gear. And sure. when all these bands were playing after Van Halen got signed, which you know was I guess uh, 78 uh, they might have even got signed in 77, I don't know, with Warner. But right after that is when New Wave and and Punk hit. So they were not signing bands until really around the time, 82, 80, 83. Uh, and really the, the Us Festival was a big thing. You know, of, of course, on MTV was all New Wave in the early right. 80s. And then they see that the Us Festival metal day, they, I mean, they had all these huge artists on the other days, you know, from The Clash to David Bowie to, you know, Aha, to all, all right. the biggest MTV bands. And then the, the metal day 
gets three times as many audience there. And then at that point on, MTV became the metal video station. That's when they really incorporate a lot more metal videos, obviously. And that's when you saw the second wave of bands really hit. But, you know, the first wave, you know, as you mentioned, Motley Crue, you know, of course, Nikki Six was in London. Uh, Mick was in several different bands. Tommy Lee and Greg Leon uh, were in Sweet 19, and they were involved with Joey Vera from Armored Saints. So all these early bands, Wasp, were sister back then. Everyone thinks that they just came out of L.A., boom, and they got big. But most of these bands were playing since the late 70s, busting yep. their ass in the clubs, uh, uh, you know, Dokken included when he was in Airborne, George Lynch included when he was in, uh, you know, the, the Boys and, and Exciter. They were playing alongside the Van Halens and all that, and a lot of people don't realize that. So it, it is great that you um, expose that, James. Yeah, and another thing, these guys really paid their dues. They yep. came from nothing. They ate hot dogs and top ramen, and they had no money. And Don was buying and selling used cars to, to scratch together enough money to pay his, his rent, him and Michael Wagner. George Lynch, at one point, was living in the back of his car, you know, playing clubs. These guys really paid their dues, and they came from nothing, and they were broke, and they all busted their ass to get where they're at today. Yeah, thank God for Gallo wine, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Neely, uh, going back, uh, how how did you get, uh, for people that don't know, Neely and Don, are, you're, you're kind of like uh, Don's new road manager, uh, so to speak. <laughs> how <laughs> did you guys... I don't know that I'm his new road manager, but, uh, you know, James Official. gave me the opportunity to write the forward to the new book, and... Uh, I'm not a writer. I, I, I certainly don't uh, believe I have those chops, but, uh, you know, I had to sit there and think about it and, and relate my experience knowing Don as a person as well as a musician. Um, I was a fan. If you read the forward in the new book, uh, which, which basically you could read the whole forward on Amazon if you don't own the book already. But, uh, you know, my relationship with Don went back uh, to 1995. I met Don, uh, actually 25 years ago this past month. Uh, I met him, uh, in person on May 6th at a club in Toledo, Ohio called Roxanne's, uh, Doc and had gotten back together for the dysfunctional tour. You know, it was just by chance that I got to meet Don face to face and just the discussion I had with him about, because I was already I was already slated to go to broadcasting school because I was uh, determined to, you know, to be a broadcaster. I, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, uh, but I knew I was going to get into radio. That was something I had in the back of my mind for years. And I uh, already decided I was going to go. Doc and had gotten back together. I was just thrilled about that. I went to the show. I just happened to meet Don. I told him what my plans were and, he seemed uh, genuinely interested in what I was going to do, and he he basically told me, hey, I want you to keep in touch with me and let me know how that goes. Keep me up to date. And I did, and from there, we just developed a lifelong friendship to where now I travel with Dokken periodically. In fact, this past March, you know, Dokken was going to go out on this tour before this pandemic hit. And uh, I was basically his, uh, you know, his personal assistant, as you put it, his new road manager <laughs> because of his surgery in November. He was a little bit hamstrung, uh, not being able to have the dexterity in his hands that he normally would. And I had to help him. You know, I had to help the guy 
uh, with his day-to-day functions and, you know, wardrobe and, and getting him on stage and taking care of him more or less. But, you know, it was something that, uh, as a friend, I said, Hey, I'll, I'll do what I have to do to see that you guys are successful. And that, that not only goes for Don, but that goes for John and Chris and BJ. Uh, we had a really good time. We had a three day run back in the first week of uh, March. Um, we went to, uh, Midland, Texas, El Paso, Texas, uh, Texas and Biloxi, Mississippi, and uh, traveling for four days as as a as a band of brothers, as it were. It was a really good time, and uh, the guys in the band they told me, you know what, this is the smoothest four days having you on the road with us because you got Don to do what he needed to do on time because Don is notoriously late, and and it's just kind of a inside joke, but they call it docking time. <laughs> no, we're not on time. We're on docking time. So uh, anyway, things went well, and Don has been very gracious to me and been an inspiration to me and and uh, allowing me to uh, I wouldn't say allow me to, but has inspired me to to start the classic metal show twenty five years ago. and and he's been a good friend, and he's come on the show many, many times. Mm. I get so many emails and messages from people i just love when don comes on because he's so open and honest and tells great stories and he's just relaxed and you can tell that he trusts you guys and he'll tell us stuff you know he obviously will tell stories and reveal things to you guys that he would never tell anybody just on a regular interview and i think james uh kind of got to know that a little bit in in talking with don as often as he did in writing this book Absolutely. And it is a great forward. I did have a chance to read that. And how how is Don doing now? I know I know it sucks that he was only able to do three shows and then the pandemic hit, but is he uh, uh he recuperated pretty well then from the surgery. Yeah, huh? he's he's coming along. I mean, you know, his right hand is is the most affected. His left hand, uh he's doing pretty well with that. His right hand still's got a little bit of time to go, but I think uh with this pandemic hitting as much as I enjoy being on the road and as much as I enjoy seeing Doc and live and, you know, the fact that they hooked up with George Lynch and Lynch mob on this, uh, you know, this twin bill, mm. it was going to be something very cool. But this has also allowed Don to take the time to uh, put together this CD that comes out in August, the uh, Lost Tracks, the very early wow. stuff Dockin. And it's also allowed him the time to actually sit down and concentrate on the brand new material, which will be a new docking record through uh, Silver Linings Records, uh, hopefully before the end of the year. All right. Now, this retrospect, is this going to include like early Airborne songs or is it all unreleased stuff or from demo tapes or? It's demo tapes. It's unreleased songs. It's stuff that I think may have been on the Carrera release, mm. but it's all remastered. Uh, it's it's brought up to the current day technology, and plus it's got three bonus tracks. Which uh, one of the bonus tracks was actually released this week uh, right. with a with a pretty cool video with some old uh, um, photos, uh, a montage of photos, and uh, the one and only. Kendall Peters, uh, she was very influential in uh, helping to pick that lead-off track. Tell us about that, Kendall. Well, as we know, Neely has all the sweet hookups, so what he did was... <laughs> just like Napoleon Dynamite, right? Yes, just like Pedro's cousin. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, 
he trusted in me to send me the three singles and ask my opinions on them in which I thought would make a good video and not to give anything away but two of them were upbeat rockers and they were going to make a great video I think in terms of this video they just released for Step Into The Light the feel of the song really matched that mood of going back to those older photos so I could say uh, Dawkins fans will like very much the uh, three singles. I, I know you obviously got to know uh, uh, Dom through Neely, but you know, being a big uh, Dawkins fan uh, all these years and being a fan of you know George Lynch and his guitar playing and stuff, uh, talk about how that came about with your relationship with Dom. Well, prior to Neely getting the uh, hookup for me to meet Dom, uh, the first show I'd gone to, I tried to do some promotional stuff with my college radio and I tried to get in touch with Dawkins and their management it was kind of more difficult to do because Dawkins is not so much involved with their management and years later I realized that Don and all the other guys in Dawkins are more likely to just stay after a show and meet people but I was always the type of person like more introverted and shy and I I wasn't one likely to stay after a show and like try to meet a band so through connections to the classic metal show it was more of a an intimate experience where I not sexually of course but um <laughs> where I got to go backstage with Don and specifically the first one was in Philadelphia and not only did I get to meet Don I got to meet Wendell We'll use that name for now. And Ooh, um, another one. <laughs> yeah, we got another one. And um, so from there, like, uh, I just, you know, got to um, meet Don uh, more as and, and get to know him more as a, a person and a musician. And they say, don't meet your heroes. But I'm glad I did. Some other instances where I met other people, I haven't felt the same way. But the most surprising thing about Don for me is his uh, father figure. Him being a father was, like, I could see that because I had tried to get my Dawkin tattoo signed and he wouldn't do it. Almost like a father telling their kid, why would you do something that stupid? <laughs> so I got to know Dom personally more in that way. And, you know, I hear Neely say that, uh, you know, we have some correspondence through Neely and I've gotten to interview Don. And he's, uh, of course, a great interview and I could talk uh, Dawkin all day. Yeah, hearing him on your show and hearing him on the Classic Metal show and, and just the chance I had to interview him. The guy's got stories for days and just hilarious, <laughs> hilarious guy. Uh, James, going back to what we were talking about Germany, how Don kind of got a start, which I thought was cool and something you know I had discussed with him when we were doing the Inside Metal series is, uh, uh, you know, again, you got to remember at that time in L.A., this is when New Wave and Punk ruled the whole uh, L.A. scene, under the whole U.S. scene pretty much uh, mm -hmm. as far as you know even radio and mtv and all that it was all you know the knack and you know the new wave stuff going on uh he took off to germany which which which, which i thought was very smart because uh, you know obviously germany was happening you had a, a scorpions you know except where it had just come out and you know of course michael wagner was from there i know don had a relationship with not only michael wagner but with dieter dirks and he was involved uh, in uh, he, I, I believe he did some vocals with a Herman Rarebell, either on the Nip in the Bud or the Herman Z. German album. And he also did uh, some background vocals on Scorpion's Blackout when uh, Klaus Mine had, uh, was going through some throat issues. Uh, did he elaborate on that in the book? At he all? did, yeah. Yeah, yeah he, he did. He helped the Scorpions 
when uh, Klaus was having trouble with his vocal cords. And he told me a little bit about that. And I believe he said some of them got used, but most of them didn't. Most of his background stuff didn't get used. And it was just, uh, it was used for uh, backing track or not backing tracks. Uh, I can't remember what he called it, but, but yeah, he was there. He was helping him out. And that's, that's what kind of sparked the whole, uh, the thing with Dieter Dirks. And, and because he did that, he got some free studio time. So he put together a demo with five or six songs. And that's basically what led to him getting his first record deal in like 1979. And that, uh, and then after that, what brought him over to LA? I know he was dealing, uh, I think he uh, got a deal with, uh, with, or he hooked up with a Q prime management, uh, Cliff Bernstein and Peter Mensch, uh, prior yeah. to signing with Electra, correct? He did. Yeah. He, he, those two guys found the break in the chains album in an import bin and they got in touch with Don and, they eventually re-released Breaking the Chains as Breaking the Chains with a G at the end. And uh, then he, he wound up signing with Electra Records and doing Tooth and Nail. Right. And that's, that's what really shot Doc and, you know, really brought them to, to become a household name was, was that album, you know. They were having a lot of problems because the Breaking the Chains album didn't sell particularly well. But when they did, uh, did Tooth and Nail, it just skyrocketed them, especially when they released... Uh, what was the big ballad? Uh, Alone again. Alone again. again exactly. Yeah. That yeah. shot the album up to over a, over a million sales. You know, it made it go platinum. Absolutely. And again, that was when MTV just uh, really started turning uh, into a more of a hard rock metal uh, video right. station. They were really uh, playing a lot of the uh, LA bands at the time. Of course, Motley Crue and Rat and all that were huge. And it's funny because when Dawkin came, they already had the records <laughs> out when they you know hit the LA scene. Uh, so they were kind of, uh, they just kind of came right into the scene. I think that's why a lot of people didn't realize about Don Dawkins' history. They just thought it was just some band that, boom, got a record out and it's already, you know, playing the L.A. scene. So they weren't really as part of the L.A. scene as I remember in the in the early 80s with bands like uh, Motley Crue were like the leaders. Steeler, believe it or mm -hmm. not, were like, uh, which was Ron Keel's old band, even prior to Ingve, mm -hmm. when he had the old Nashville guys uh, with Dunnigan and, and all those guys. They were like one of the leading bands in L.A., even ahead of Rat. It was always Motley Crue and Steeler, and then, of course, Rat and Warrior. Rat and Warrior both came up from San Diego. You had that San Diego click with Warrior, Rat, Rough Cut, Jakey Lee, that whole kind of uh, clan, and uh, you know, of course, all those bands kind of came into their old fold, but at the time, you know, all those bands kind of shared musicians, you know, Rat, Dokken, Rough Cut, you know, Jakey Lee, all these guys, you know, until they kind of found their niche. And it's kind of funny how all these bands ended up getting signed pretty much around the same time, you know, uh, uh, Rough Cut, Malice, Warrior, you know, Armored Saint, Black and Blue, you know, just boom, it, it, it really hit. So a lot of people thought, you know, even though Dokken was uh, a little bit previous to that, it, it just became this, this big LA metal explosion. Mm -hmm. and, and Warren D. Martini actually played in Dawkins for a time. That's right. That's right. He talks yeah. about that. Yeah. When he, he was like before. 17, 18. Yeah. yeah. Before jumping over to Rat. Yeah. Crazy. So, uh, Neely, um, want to share any interesting Dawkins stories here? I do. Um, you know, one of the things, uh, as as a lot of people may or may not know, I'm sure a lot of the hardcores know this, but since uh, James had an opportunity to uh, interview Don extensively for this book. And Don is very, very forthcoming and, you know, telling his stories and, and sharing his legacy. 
a lot of people don't realize that prior to Dawkins getting signed or making it as a music act, Don was working his ass off behind the scenes. I, you threw out the name Bat Black and Blue there. Of course, Jamie St. James and the boys, they got signed before uh, Dokken did. And actually, Don was very instrumental in getting Black and Blue signed. Wow. And they, of course, and, came over from Oregon. So they weren't right, even really an L.A. band. They, yeah. And uh, Don actually produced the first great white uh, releases. Right. Uh, so he, he and Jack Russell go back a long way. He and Jack are very, very tight to this day. And, uh, you know, he was very instrumental in getting a uh, great white sign. He obviously produced, uh, X, Y, Z. He produced shy. He, he's, oh, yeah. he was, he was very, very instrumental in other people's careers. Not only, you know, not only the docking thing and, you know, being the front man and, you know, writing a lot of the lyrics or a good lion's share of the lyrics, but, you know, he worked with other bands and helped them. Uh, be successful as well. And, and those are things that he never gets credit for. And the one thing, and, and I'm going to, I'm not going to blow, you know, the classic metal show horn too loud here, but one of the things that I believe the classic metal show has done for Don personally is to personalize him with the fans, because prior to this, the only things that you ever read or ever heard of, especially with the rise of social media, Don's an asshole. He's a jerk. He's a this. He's that, you know. And I've traveled with Don for, for 20 years now, and I've never seen that side of him. Never. Not even once. And, and I often go, why do you have such a bad rap? And you know what it is? Is because he's successful. He's a, he's a great musician. He's successful. He's, he's smart. He's funny. He's, he's well-read. And, and I think a lot of people just, uh, are intim either intimidated by that or they're jealous of it, or I'm not really sure. But, uh, the thing is, is, uh, you know, Kendall's met Don, uh, obviously James has interviewed him extensively. Don's been on the CMS many times. You, Bob, you've interviewed Don. I've never seen that side of what people say. He's a jerk. He's an asshole. He's self-centered. He's this George Lynch is the man, you know, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's all you ever hear. But in reality, as much as I like George as a player, George is actually the troublemaker. He's the guy who's always stirring the shit. So, uh, you know, that's just my, that's just my viewpoint after 25 years of, in, of being involved here. But, uh, Great book by James. If you haven't picked it up and read it, uh, James did a lot of in-depth uh, interviews with Don and obviously uh, Jeff Pilsen, as well as a lot of the peripheral people who have been involved with the Doc and Legacy. And, uh, you know, if you have an interest in that kind of thing, I think you're really going to enjoy this book. Yeah, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, the L.A. bands in general, the so-called quote-unquote hair metal bands of that era, uh, get a lot of uh, bad rap, you know. And uh, like, you know, after interviewing a lot of these artists for the Inside Metal uh, series, you know, a lot of people say, ah, oh, this guy's an asshole, this guy's a... Everyone was super cool, you know. And, you know, maybe years ago they were, but whatever. They were great people and, and especially 
spent a lot of time and uh, very cordial. And yeah, and, and Don particularly, we we sat for two hours in his yard uh, talking. So and then we went up to his his room and he was showing us all these old pictures and stuff. So yeah, a lot of these guys definitely get a bad rap. But I think it's, it's just all has to do with the whole 80s metal kind of thing that they, they kind of clump everything together, you know, as, as oh, all these guys were just womanizing assholes, egomaniacs, blah, blah, blah. But uh, you are correct there. Uh, I, uh, James, I was wondering, some of the other people you interviewed in this, did, were you? I know you interviewed uh, Peter Baltus uh, from Accept, who obviously played uh, with uh, Dawkin on the Don Dawkin album. Did you get a chance to interview John Norum or no? No, I never did get in touch with him. Uh, there was a few guys I wanted to interview, but I couldn't get in touch with for one reason or another. I, I did interview Tom Warman, who that's did, great, yeah, yeah, work on on Tooth and Nail, and he told me some great stories. But one thing I want to elaborate on going back to the hair metal bands, quote unquote hair metal bands, is a lot of these guys don't get credit for being incredible musicians. You know, they're looked at like Very almost like they're jokes. You know, they you take a band like Winger and they were made fun of by uh, Beavis and Butthead. But, you know, those guys are all accomplished musicians. Kip Winger is a is a compositional genius. I mean, come on, look at, look at, uh, there's so many great guitar players out there that don't get any credit. And some of these guys are graduates with multiple master's degrees from accredited colleges. And they're, and a lot of these guys are in their sixties and seventies now and they're teachers, you know, they just don't get the credit for being great. Some of them great musicians. Absolutely. And I think that is the sad thing about uh, that whole eighties hair metal things. People just tie them into their, their image and their MTV videos, but they don't, realize their virtuosity they had on their instruments, particularly a lot of the guitar players, but not only guitar players, the drummers, bassists, oh, vocalists, yeah. you're absolutely right. I do remember that Don was very close with the uh, Black and Blue guys when they first came over from uh, Oregon, and it was pretty astonishing that Black and Blue, I believe, were one of the first bands after Motley Crue to get signed. Uh, in LA, as as far as the LA bands, of course you had Van Halen, but uh, you know Black and Blue got signed prior to Quiet Riot and a lot of the other bands. From from what I understand, uh, was Don involved in getting Dieter Dirks to produce that debut Black and Blue record? Well, well, he was actually Dieter Dirks is the one who actually discovered Don. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, Don was singing at the whiskey at, with his band Dokken, his incarnation Dokken, and. Uh, you know, Don tells the story how he was performing at the Whiskey and Dieter Dirks happened to be in in town in L.A. at the Whiskey. And, you know, he came up to Don and, and uh, you know, he introduced himself and Don knew who he was. And he goes, oh, do you like my band? He goes, no, I don't like your band, but I like you. <laughs> and, and that's when he invited him to come over to Germany to do the uh, Scorpion Sessions. He's, he said he liked his vibrato, very mm -hmm. similar to Klaus Mine, and, and that's how Don ended up going to Germany and being able to uh, swap out his uh, contributions to what could have been or would have been the Blackout album. In his compensation was using the studio over there to record some docking music. Wow, I didn't realize he was that instrumental, Dieter Dirks, in, in getting a on over to Germany and that. Wow, interesting. And, and uh, you know, Michael Wagner only came to the U.S. because Don brought him here. Yeah, he was a kid back then. He was pretty young and very yeah, so, new. So Don, Don was very instrumental in what is or what was the 80s. I mean, he had his fingers in a lot of the pie back then. And, 
you know, a lot of people don't know it. You know, Don was Don was working his ass off as producer, promoter, uh, you know, musician. He was doing a lot of things at at all at one time. All right. You know, Michael, uh, I, I when I interviewed Jack Russell, you know, because Don basically discovered Great White. Jack Russell said basically without Don, maybe there's no Great White. You know, he was that important. You know, that's another connection too. a uh, great guy. And I've became uh, pretty close uh, with him is Alan Niven, who obviously managed Great White and also managed Guns N' Roses. And I believe Alan Niven was incredibly instrumental in Guns mm-hmm. N' Roses success because nobody could have got Guns N' Roses to get their shit together like Alan Niven did. And he was a part of that whole Total Access Redondo Beach scene right. as well. I right. know he and Don, uh, it was like a, a family. And, and a lot of times, you know, I've, I've got to know Jack pretty well and interviewed him for, you know, several of the Inside Metal movies as well as Band vs. Brand, as, as you know. Jack often refers to uh, Don as like his father, you know, and that he really took him on and uh, uh, helped him out, you know, taught him a lot of stuff. He you know, calls his nickname? He calls them pops pops and Don calls them son or something like that. Yeah, Yeah. pretty much. Kendall, you've been uh, kind of silent here. I'm sorry for not including you. Uh, Anything uh, you want to add before we close this off? Um, Based on promotion of this book and to see uh, how good it is. Well, I very much enjoyed it. Uh, James, just out to you. uh, Because I knew of the timeline of Doc and in certain points in their history. But this book just went so in-depth to why things happened and when they happened. And I really enjoyed the uh, early incarnations of the band because at first I had just seen YouTube uh, videos of these early songs and pictures of the group members. And even in the comments of those YouTube videos with the song uploads, uh, it's very controversial as to who is pictured. So it gets all these things solved for hardcore doc and fans. Uh, but I have a question for Neely. So based on the book, is there anything you read in this book that you hadn't known before about Doc and considering your uh, friendship with Don? I think it's a lot of the really, really, really early stuff. You know, the the more popular stuff, I think, was uh, well known uh, for Doc and fans. But I I like the way that James dug into the very early beginnings of of the three-piece Doc and 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 uh, the um, interviews that he did with um, uh, Greg, Greg Leon. Leon and 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 um, what's his name? Pac- yeah, exactly. So so those were some of the revelations, some of the very early stuff that uh, I wasn't apprised of. So uh, yeah, even I learned some good stuff out of that book. Can you get into a little bit detail about? Because uh, I've always been a huge fan of Greg Leon, and of course we involved him in the uh, Inside Metal series. And he's another unknown guy that unfortunately never really got his big break. But with the Greg Leon invasion, we're very instrumental on the LA scene, and of course Sweet Nineteen. He had uh, you know Tommy Lee in the band, and, and Joey Vera played with Greg Leon. Uh, talk about some of the stuff Greg Leon and some of the other early musicians talked about. Or you want me Gary, to answer that? Yeah, like Gary Holland and and some of the uh, stories they've. Yeah, Greg Greg Leon, he's a great guitar player, and I've been interviewing Greg for my next book, which is going to be all about the great guitar players from the eighties. Mm. And yeah, he never really got his huge break or became a, a household name like an Eddie Van Halen or anybody like that. But he's another underrated guy, and if anybody gets a chance, they should go check out some of his some of his work that he did. He was in a lot of different bands, like you were saying. He he was an important and influential guy back in the day. 
you know, and, and I think people should uh, should really spend a minute and go check that guy out because he's a gifted musician and a gifted guitar player and a good vocalist. Great vocalist, yeah. One heck of a cool guy. And, and for those that don't know, Greg also replaced Randy Rhodes in Quiet Riot, the did. original. But I believe at that time they had, he had changed the name to Debro. But he was uh, actually suggested after Randy Rhodes got the Aussie gig, Randy suggested uh, to Kevin Debro, hey, get this kid Greg Leon. And uh, he played with uh, Debro for several years uh, before doing, uh, well, not several years, but shortly before doing the Dawkins stint. Yeah, he, he did Dawkins right after that. And then uh, he after after Dawkins, he just decided to go back on his own. He liked having a three-piece band, and he liked being the lead singer and the lead guitarist. And Gary Holland, what's he got going on these days? I know he plays in uh, in a couple of bands. I tried to I, I actually tried to interview him a couple times, but I oh, never he's... did get around. Oh, okay. To but yeah, he does have a couple. I, I did speak to him a little bit, uh, he, and he he's he still plays and and he loves playing. I know that. I see him talking about it all the time, but uh, I never did personally get to interview him. Oh, okay, my bad. What about Steve Barry? Stephen Barry, yeah, he's uh, he does uh, he's like an audio engineer or something like that now. So he's still he's still uh, mixed up in the music business and all of that. Super busy guy. It was hard to get him pinned down for an interview, but I finally did. You know, he was he was just there for a short time for like two and a half years in in the first incarnation of Dawkin. So he didn't have a ton of stuff. You know, his memory, you know, he's like he said, you know, this is going back almost 45 years, you know. Wow. But he gave me what he had and which was interesting about making the first seven inch single that they made with uh, Hard Luck, Hard Luck Woman, I think it was on there. And where they recorded it and, and and talked a little bit about the Redondo Beach scene. Because like you were saying, there was a scene in the whole Redondo Beach, too, where Don was living and all that. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And Martin Popoff, I see you got our good friend and uh, Shockwave Skull Sessions regular Martin Popoff. Uh, yeah, you got some stories th- uh, from him or what was his involvement? Yeah, I got, I got some quotes from him and he let me use bits and pieces of interviews he had done with Don right. and George and, and Jeff and stuff like that. He's right. always been very helpful with me. All right. Very cool. Well, I guess we could close this out. Was there anything uh, else you guys wanted to add to this discussion? Well, one of the things that uh, was very instrumental, especially during that 80s era, was you mentioned Bob earlier in the uh, discussion here about Total Access Studio. Total Access, kind of like... Um, you know, that studio was so responsible for so many releases uh, in the 80s. Obviously, Dokken and, and uh, Michael Wagner worked there. And uh, Don owned that studio for a lot of years. And it's changed hands. I believe he sold it to Jack Russell at one point. Wow. And, and then he bought it back from Jack. <laughs> oh, wow. Wasn't Wynn Davis one of the owners as well? Yeah, Wynn Davis, I All believe right. he's, he owns it now. Or I'm not even sure if it's still in existence. But, uh, yeah, it traded hands between Don and Jack and Wynn Davis. and um, Alan Niven, I think, was involved with that. I believe you're right. Yeah. And uh, the funny thing is, is that Tommy Chong right. uh, actually recorded there in Off Hours. <laughs> and uh if you if you see the um movie called Far Out Man, right near the beginning of the movie, there's a scene there where Tommy Chong is eating breakfast and uh what what what's that guy's name? Martin um can't remember that guy's name. Uh he, he hosted uh, America tonight. I can't remember what his name. Martin Mall. He oh. and uh, Ray Don Chong uh, went up to Tommy Chong and he's eating breakfast and he goes, hey, wait a minute, let me turn the music down. And there's Don and 
I believe it was John Norm. I don't know who was on drums, but they were all rocking out. (laughs) (laughs) I heard about that. I got to check that out. You can actually see the scene on YouTube. It's actually pretty funny. But uh, also uh, Don on Don's, um, I believe it was, uh, I'm I'm not sure if it was Mirror Mirror or, Mm -hmm. but Tommy Chong is on the, on the beginning of the movie or not what I mean, the music video rather. And, uh, you know, he's, he's claiming that the song he's listening to, he wrote that song. So, so Don, uh, had, has a, uh, friendship with Tommy Chong and would let him use total access studio to record his, you know, his comedy bits and all kinds of things, you know, but total access studio played a huge part in the eighties metal scene. A lot of bands recorded there, obviously Dawkins recorded there Wynn Davis, uh, engineered there as well as Michael Wagner, uh, producing there. So a lot of bands recorded there. Great white, that studio is legendary. And, uh, I, I gotta say that I was very, very honored to be invited to go to total access studio and be there and hang out there, uh, at one time. And it was just like, that was a great experience for me. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember, uh, vividly, uh, Total Access Studio and all the bands that went through there, and I believe another band down, Don was uh, briefly uh, involved was was the uh, great all girl metal band Phantom Blue, and I think they recorded yeah, there as yeah, well. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, Michelle Meldrum, yes, who ended up marrying John John Norum. John Norum, yeah. James, why don't you uh, give out the information on how people could get the uh, new Dokken book? Sure, they can get it on Amazon. It's available on Amazon or any other online retailers like Barnes & Nobles, or they can send me an email at curl88 at hotmail.com. That's curl88 with two eights at hotmail.com, and I'll be more than happy to send out a copy to them. I have PayPal. But, yeah, basically everybody's pretty much just been buying it off Amazon. Right on. And that's James Curl. Curl is C-U-R-L. And uh, are you doing the special autograph copies as well? Yeah, I have I have copies that uh, they'll be at my house tomorrow. So I will have uh, autograph copies if anybody wants my signature on a book for some reason. <laughs> they can have it. Very cool. And the full title, Docking Into the Fire and Other Embers of 80s Metal History, correct? Right. All right. Before we go, Bob, I just want to mention that uh, James actually spent some real big coin for this cover. <laughs> James? That's right. A Mark Weiss cover, correct? I did. That thing cost me, uh, what, uh, a grand. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, of good. course, our own Chris Aiken, the co-host of the Classic Metal Show, he dressed that cover out. He did. Whoa. He designed the cover, and I love it. And Don really did a big favor for James. Why don't you tell him, James? He did. I I was a little nervous, and I didn't want to do it, but I I texted Don and asked him if I could use the Dawkins logo for the book. And Ah. he said, absolutely. He said, that's what everybody recognizes. You have my permission. If anybody says anything, they can talk to me. I said, all right, thank you. I'm just very, very appreciative that he did that. Bigger Mark Weiss, he has a new photo book that just uh, came out to, I believe. I actually bought it yesterday, Bob. I bought it off of Amazon yesterday, 45 bucks. Wow. Well, at least it wasn't $1,045. Yeah, it was the decade of decadence I had <laughs> yes. to buy. All right, odd, man. Yeah, he, he was an old school uh, photographer, of course, did a lot of the Guns N' Roses, uh, t- tons of the bands yeah, back in those days, yeah. And Kendall, let people know about your radio show and how they could tune into it. Sure thing. It's Metal and Kendall on UncontrolledNoise.com, and it's Wednesdays, 9 p.m. Eastern, 
till 11, so two hours live, and I take everyone's requests. Everyone's requests? And she's live at the classic metal show chat room, chatandkill.com. Right, Kendall? Of course. That's right. Of course, the classic metal show heard every Saturday night from 6 p.m. to 2 or till midnight Pacific Standard Time. Is that correct, Neely? Yeah, it would be 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, six-hour show, all live, nothing but off-the-cuff riffing, nothing's planned. You know, Bob, you've been on the show many times. I do know. We'll see how long that show lasts. I hear your partner, Chris Aiken, is uh, doing another podcast with my partner, Matt Hartnett, I hear they're building this big conspiracy against us, Neely. What do you think about well, that? that's okay, Bob, because if, <laughs> if something happens to Chris, the next incarnation of the show will be Wendell and Kendall. I know. There you go. <laughs> no, actually, I, I love Aftershocks. I think that's good for both uh, uh, Matt and uh, uh, Chris. I know Chris wants to get his inner metal feelings out there. He's uh, uh, with stuff he can't do on the classic metal show, I suppose. Yeah, he like he likes to dabble in all kinds of you know avenues outside of a classic metal thing. But uh, anyway, the the classic metal show has more become commentary and a talk show more than metal than anything. But uh, it has the whole uh, attitude of in your face, fuck you. I'll give you a punch just like Don Dokken. We'll do another. <laughs> That's right, the mother trucker. Well, very, very cool. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, glad to have you guys all on board. Definitely check out the new Doc and Book, Into the Fire, and Other Embers of 80s Metal History. Order it on Amazon by James Curl. And, of course, check out the classic metal show every Saturday night. And, uh, uh, Kendall, your show uh, follows that? Uh, Wednesday nights. Uh, Wednesday nights. So, some midweek metal Kendall, Neely, and James. It was a pleasure having you guys on. Hey, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast. Subscribe and listen to all episodes by going to our pages on iTunes, Spreaker, YouTube, Spotify, and more. You can listen to all other episodes and access up-to-date information and news on the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast by going to our website at www.shockwaveskullsessions.com. Email all comments, questions, and suggestions to shockwaveskullsessions at gmail.com. Introducing touch-free payments from PayPal, a safe way for your customers to pay. Whether you're a market seller, I'll take two tomatoes and a cucumber. poodle pamperer, <laughs> piano tuner, or plumber. Signing up to accept touch-free payments for your business is easy. Simply download the PayPal app and display your own unique QR code for your customers to scan. Touch-free QR code payments. No seller fees until 2021. Not applicable to PayPal here transactions. Other fees may apply. Shop safe with PayPal. Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. Ace is the only national retailer that carries Benjamin Moore paint, which means the paint you trust and a huge selection of colors are right in your neighborhood. And right now, when you buy a sample of Benjamin Moore paint, we'll give you $5 off your next paint purchase. So if you're looking for award-winning service and a new look for your home, look no further than Benjamin Moore paint at Ace. Offer valid on gallons of Benjamin Moore, Clark & Kensington, and Royal Paint. Limit one $5 coupon on one gallon purchase to participating Ace stores only. See store for additional details and exclusions.